Well, for those of you who are new or maybe been away from Outlook for a while, we've just begun a, begun a brand new journey in the book of Revelation. I've never preached a series in 22 years of leading the church here, never preached a series from the book of Revelation. And uh, that's why I'm super excited and interested. I met uh, one of the ladies who came in this morning, said she woke up at five o'clock this morning and read the whole book of Revelation in preparation for church this morning. So well done. My question is, have you read it? If you haven't yet, we've got a study guide that goes together with this preaching journey because we would love you to dive in. Some people kind of avoid the book of Revelation. Others, that's the only book they read because they interpret the whole world through the book of Revelation. But I believe that God wants to speak to us as a church. I believe there's a message in this amazing book that God wants us to take hold of. So I encourage you to read it over the next couple of weeks while we go through it together. So we began last week, and if you missed last week, I would encourage you to, uh, to go back. It was the foundation. We looked at chapter 1, chapter 5, and 6. And the reason we did that, or 4 and 5 rather, the reason we did that is because we're studying the big why behind this book is... Are we ready for the end times? Are we ready for the return of Jesus? And before we look at the question, which I'm going to be starting today, are we ready? We first looked at the fact that Jesus is ready. Our King is ready. Heaven is ready. Worship is happening. It's not a situation room in heaven where there's tense chaos. No, no. Heaven is ready. Jesus is worthy to open that scroll that unfolds the final days of human history. So Jesus is ready but are we, which is what we're going to study today. So today we're going to then uh, move on to chapters 2 and 3. Chapters 2 and 3 is a, is a section of seven letters that Jesus writes to seven different churches, and we're going to look at them in a moment. But the big question behind that is simply this. Is the church ready for the return of Jesus? And before the return of Jesus, as we read the book, it looks like there might be some, some choppy times. There might be some, some shaking times. It looks like there could be some judgments from heaven, some shakings of the earth below. Is the church ready? And I'm, I'm quite passionate about this question. And so I'm going to try and contain my passion this morning as I preach. Because if I had to answer it in a nutshell, I'd say no. I don't think the church is ready for shaking times before Jesus' return. And the reason I say that is because when we look over the last couple of years, and all of us have been through that COVID pandemic, and I'm not going to try and downplay the COVID pandemic. Some of you might have lost loved ones. It was a difficult economic, it was, and yet in America alone, in the United States alone, 34,000 churches closed their doors. No more church. 34,000 it seems that millions of Christians around the world simply didn't come back to church after COVID. And I think if we had to look at graphs one day in terms of the, the bump of COVID versus some of the shaking we're going to start studying next week, I think we'll realize COVID was a little blip compared to what may be coming in the future. And if that little bump caused the closure of so many churches and, and so many Christians seem to fall away, are we ready and I think by and large, looking at the church around the world, the answer would have to be no. That's why I want to start with a couple of general observations. And uh, I'd love you to read over these next, uh, this next week, I'd love you to read these seven letters to the seven churches so that it makes more sense to you. So it says these seven letters written from Jesus to seven angels of seven churches. That's interesting that God gave Jesus this revelation 
And Jesus gave it to John. John then sent it to angels, and angels wrote it. I mean, it's quite a, 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 quite a journey to get to us. In fact, some people wonder, when it says angel, the word angel means messenger. So when it says to the seven angels of the seven churches, it could mean every church has its own angel. Who knows? Maybe somewhere up here, there might be an angel overseeing Outlook Church. Maybe. Or it could mean the angel or the messenger. Maybe John was writing to the messengers, the ones who bring God's message to the church. Might be the preachers or the leaders of the church. doesn't really matter, but it makes sense. These are the person who are bringing God's direction to the church. The first question we ask then is, well, why, why did Jesus include these seven letters to seven churches? Was it, first it could be specific, these specific seven churches, because they were real churches. John, in fact, ministered to those churches at that particular time before he was landed onto the island of Patmos. Why those seven churches? It could be specific church at a specific time just for them. And yet, they all had to read each other's letters and God knew these letters are going to be for churches for all time. So I think it was more than just for those specific churches. Some others would interpret it and say, actually what we see in those seven churches is seven stages of church history. First stage was the passion of Ephesus. We'll read about it in a moment. And then it goes through different times. And, and now most would say, we're now in the church age of Laodicea where the church is lukewarm. Ah, it's one way of interpreting it. I think the problem with that sometimes is it's a bit of a, a Western-centric type of view because actually not all the church is lukewarm. Most of the church around the world have it way more difficult than what we do. Many churches in hostile environments, persecuted churches, are actually on fire for Jesus in difficult times. But maybe because it's seven, and remember seven signifies the completeness, wholeness. We're going to see that number seven many times throughout this book. I think this might be letters to specific churches, but with a general meaning for all churches at all times. And Jesus points to seven different things in these churches, because remember, the big why of this book is, is the church ready? Are we ready for what is to come? And so as we read, you know, be seven almost identical letters in terms of their structure. Each letter has an address. And what's amazing is uh, he says to the, the angel, for example, of the church or Ephesus or Laodicea. But then next after the address is the attribute. In other words, who wrote it? And what you're going to notice as you read each of those seven letters is all of them refer to Jesus, to the revelation of Jesus. But some would say to the one whose eyes are like blazing fire. The other would say to the one who's dressed in white with a golden sash. The other would say to the one whose feet are bronze. And what you'll notice if you read carefully is when Jesus challenges each of the churches to repent, the key to their repentance is actually that revelation of Jesus. It's a profound, if you take some time, I want you to meditate on them and try and link, Jesus, why did you introduce yourself like that to that church and then they had to change in this way, you'll realize that the key to transformation is revelation. And so Jesus reveals himself slightly different to each of the seven churches because each of the seven churches need to be transformed in a particular way. And just as Scott was saying, who do you say that I am? When Jesus wants to transform your life, the first thing he's going to want to do is transform your revelation of him. Because we reflect the revelation we have of God. When we know Jesus deeper at a revelation level, 
our lives begin to change. Then to each letter, there's a, a section of approval. I know your deeds. You're doing this well. You're doing this well. You're doing this well. There's encouragement. But then next is the accusation or the, war, the, the challenge. Yet, I hold this against you. Then there's the advice or the warning. Um, this needs to change. It needs to be adjusted. Then there's the assurance to him who overcomes. And finally, the appeal. Let him who hears what the Spirit is saying. Now, I'm going to read one of those letters as an example this morning. And as I read through that letter, you're going to hear each of those. The address, the attribute, the approval, the accusation, the advice, the assurance, the appeal. And each of those seven letters follows a very similar pattern. Remember... The what is important, but more important than the what is the why. Right through this whole book, as we're studying it, we're going to keep going back to the question, why? It's given to get the church ready for what is to come. For the sake of simplicity today, I've looked at those seven lessons, letters and tried to pull out what are the, the main ingredients or what are the main focus from those letters that Jesus is trying to teach his church to be ready for a future. If we're going to be a church, Outlook Church, we're ready for an end times, whatever that might be. If Jesus were to come next week, five years' time, or a hundred years' time, Lord, how do we live ready today? And I believe there's four things. That's, um, and let me give them to you. I call them the four pillars of church readiness, which we're going to see in these letters. The first one, and I'll explain that one in a moment, is passion for Jesus. He spoke about that to the church in Ephesus and Sardis. He then spoke about perseverance of the saints to the church in Smyrna and Philadelphia. Then he speaks about purity of the gospel to Pergamum and Thyatira before he speaks about the priority of the kingdom to the church in Laodicea. So let's get into the scriptures. I'm going to read one of those letters. Viv made mention to it a moment ago in that prophetic word. As an example, it starts in Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, or to the messenger, so whether that's an angel or whether that's the preacher or leader of the church, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. There's the, there's the introduction. Who's this attributed to? Now, we know that's a picture of Jesus. Because if you did read chapter 1, you would have seen Jesus introduced himself as the one who holds the seven stars or messengers in his right hand, and he walks among the seven churches. Now, when I think about this picture, this is Jesus. He's holding the leaders, or the, he's holding them in his hand, and he's, he's not looking at the churches from a distance, but he's walking amongst his churches. Straight away, that picture for me of Jesus is a picture of closeness. He's holding the leaders close. He's walking among the churches close. Because what we're going to see in a moment, if you know this letter, the accusation is you've lost your first love. In other words, you've lost intimacy. How does Jesus reveal himself? The God of intimacy. I'm close to you. I want you to be close to me. Let's carry on verse number two. Here comes the, the commendation. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. So there it is. Those are great things that Jesus says about the church. Verse number four, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Some of your translation will say, you've lost your first love. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. 
If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. There's the consequence. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So there's an example. The other seven letters follow after that. They all follow the same format. But let's take one of these letters. Let's look at this church in Ephesus. This church was probably the strongest, biggest, and most influential church of those seven. This is the church in Ephesus. Ephesus had become a base church. In fact, Paul the Apostle, who we read so many of these letters, Paul planted this church himself. He established this as an incredible church. When he moved on to start other churches, he sent Timothy. Timothy, I want you to go and lead the church. That Timothy, who we read about in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, we read about him many times. He was then the leader of this influential church. And if that's not enough, it later on, John, that apostle, the one who wrote Revelation, who's now on the island of Patmos, Jesus' disciple, he then became the leader of this church. I mean, that's an incredible leadership from Paul the apostle, Timothy, and then John the disciple. All of these had been pastors of this amazing church in Ephesus. Notice how they are commended. Four things. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. That's a great thing. In other words, church, you're going for it. You're passionate. You're working for the Lord. You're doing all of these conferences. You're doing outreaches. You're doing mission work. Secondly, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. In other words, you don't put up with nonsense. You're not chasing after the latest, what's exciting in the church. You want the authentic. You want the real thing. Thirdly, you have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. In other words, you've been through tough seasons and you didn't just throw in the towel when the going went tough. You persevered. You stayed the course. Fourthly, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans was a type of teaching that had grown into the church at that time where pretty much in some ways it was almost miracles for money type of ministry. In other words, people would come and promote themselves as these mighty men of God. Bring me into your church. Give me money. Miracles are going to take place. It happens today a lot more than we think. Jesus says, I hate that just like you hate them. So these were incredible commendations from the Lord. And yet to this amazing church, it's working hard, testing. It's, I mean, they've persevered. They don't like these fall. This is what Jesus said. I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Isn't that amazing? For me, when I read this, it concerns me deeply. It says that you you could be a church that's doing so many churchy things. You could have all the church programs. You could have the outreaches and the classes. You could have this. You could have that. You could have all of those things. Yet Jesus says, but this is the most important thing. You've lost that first love for Jesus. So consider how far you've fallen. In other words, remember your beginnings. I love what uh, Viv was saying about, remember that, that wedding day moment. And uh, I, I had the privilege of, of marrying Jody and Storm yesterday. This is my semi-adopted daughter. And, and, and by the time she was halfway down the aisle, he was already blubbing his eyes out. I mean, she gets nervous. Then she starts to giggle. I'm trying to take them through their vows. And, and he's like, word, I'm taking it really slowly because he's stuttering through his words with tears flowing everywhere. She's so nervous, she's starting to giggle. I'm trying to bring them through because there's stars in their eyes. Repent. Return to your first love. 
Let me show you something of what those early days in Ephesus looked like. This is when Paul the Apostle was planting the church, and, and we can find it in Acts chapter 19. I'll read a few extracts. It says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, and so Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrenus. That's great. That's the university. That's the Gentile university. If, if trying to meet with religious people, all they want to be is stubborn, no more. Let's get into the university. Let's plant this church among students, Greeks, who've got questions, understanding. That's what Paul did. It was radical in his time. Verse number 10. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Isn't that amazing? So two years, this new church plant, passionately preaching about Jesus in the university, everyone in the province gets to hear the word of God. That's radical. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. I love that verse. I mean, Miracles by themselves are actually extraordinary, but I mean, it's, these are not even normal miracles. Not, not just the normal, lots of people healed, delivered, out of wheelchairs. No, no, now we're doing extraordinary miracles. In other words, the power of God was working in this church. Verse number 12, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. Isn't that amazing? Verse number 18, it says, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. I love that. There was such a fear of God that had now gripped the church. No more hiding in darkness. No more playing this Christian game. People were coming and saying, no, actually, there's darkness in me. I've got to get it out. This has happened in the past. This is what I'm involved in. These are the addictions I'm struggling with. It's time to bring darkness into light. I want to be free. I want to see God setting me free and using me. Verse number 19, a number who had practiced sorcery. This is all kinds of sangomas, witchcraft, all these new age kind of, it says, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burnt them publicly. Yeah, we're talking about iPads, we're talking about books, we're talking about all these kind of, uh, when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas, which all of you know is about 10 million rand. That's a big bonfire. That's an expensive bonfire. I mean, you look at your meat on the brass sometimes and you think, oh, that's two, three hundred rands worth of meat right there. This is a 10 million rand bonfire of repentance. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. I'm, I'm trying to share this because I want you to grasp that this is a happening church. This church is going for it for Jesus. It's a base church. They train people in the word. They turned the university upside down. The whole province heard the word of God. Radical healings were taking place. The business community radically impacted the region. Their repentance bonfire was huge. Now imagine if that was us. Outlook Church, counting passionately for God. And now imagine if someone prophetic walked in one day and they said, Outlook Church, I want to tell you that one day, your region, Richards Bay, it's going to be the most unreached people group in the world. How would you feel? How would you feel? Radical base church counting for Jesus. And someone came and told us, by the way, one day in the future, Richards Bay, Zululand area is going to be the most unreached people group 
in the world. When I hear that, I think, no, uh -uh, not a chance. No way. Jeremy Mayers, he, he's writes a website called redeeminggod.com who did some research into, into this. He said the city of Ephesus, remember that's the letter, that's what we've just read about, was located in what is now the country of Turkey, a predominantly Muslim country. There is no longer a Christian church in Ephesus. Of course, there's no longer a city of Ephesus either. It's an archaeological site now, but that's beside the point. The point is that although there is no longer a city of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus used to be the strongest church in Asia Minor, and now there are hardly even any Christians to be found in all of Asia Minor, let alone a church of any strength or size. Turkey is 99.8% Muslim, leaving only 0.2% as Christian. And even this 0.2% is in rapid decline. Turkey, although it used to be a fortification of Christianity, is now the largest unreached nation in the world and one of the strongest propagators of Islam. Most of the nation's 55 million Muslims have never even heard the gospel. So what happened? Yes, there were a couple of wars and invasions about a thousand years ago, but the decline away from Christianity began, began much sooner. In fact, rather than the wars and invasions being the reason of the decline of Christianity in Turkey, the invasions rather seem to be the result of the decline. We could say that these Muslim invasions may have just been God's judgment on an apostate church, on a church that has already fallen away. I don't know about you, but that grieves my heart. When, when I hear about that, I think, surely not. Surely not. And here's Jesus writing to the church, Ephesus. Are you ready? Are you ready? And I think when we look back, we can say that the, the church wasn't ready. Now I want you to understand why I'm passionate about this. We can play games. We can do a good church service. We can run some nice music, and we can have a good time worshiping the Lord. But church... Are we ready for Jesus' return? Are we building in ourselves, are we building a community of believers who know how to stand strong in their faith, who don't just play church games, but are passionately in love with Jesus? So let me take us through those four pillars of church readiness. Number one, and this is the most important one that Jesus addressed in Ephesus, is a passion for Jesus. The main ingredients for church readiness is love for Jesus. In Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 31, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no command greater than these. I want to ask you a very serious question this morning. Are you more in love with Jesus now than you've ever been before? Because if the answer is no, then Jesus would say, repent. Repent and return to your first love. I've been following Christ for about 33 years now, and I can honestly say I'm more in love with Jesus now than ever before in my history. Every year when I, I sit with the, the different eldership couples and we do some feedback and review, question number one, are you more in love with Jesus now than this time last year? Because if you're not, then that's the problem. 
If we're burning with a passionate love for Jesus, we can endure and overcome, and we will. But if that love begins to fade, everything else becomes irrelevant. What does it mean for us? It means love for Jesus is more important than hard work for Jesus. Tyrant Daniel always reminds us, the Lord of the work is more important than the work of the Lord. It means that Jesus must be central to all that we do. It means each of us must take responsibility for the fire that burns within us. In Romans 12, 11, it says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Friends, may Outlook Church be known primarily as a church passionately in love with Jesus. Number two, pillar number two is perseverance of the saints. To the church in Smyrna, Revelation 2 verse 10, it says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. To the church in Philadelphia, in Revelation 3 verse 10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Perseverance. Perseverance means to keep going when everything inside of you wants to quit. I'm a very bad runner. My wife is a good runner. And the main difference is, when I run, I listen to my body. And it cries out to me passionately, for goodness sake, stop. I feel exhausted, I feel my legs burning, and my body is communicating to me loudly, just walk. You were created to walk, not to run. And the problem I have as a runner is that I listen to my body. Kate's a great runner. Probably feels the same thing, but she just mutes her body. Mute. Turns up her earphones and listens to the music and keeps on running. See, that's the difference. Perseverance, no perseverance when it comes to running. The reality is all of us are going to go. You might be in a situation right now that calls for perseverance. You're facing a trial, a hardship, and your flesh is saying, where is this God that you serve Where's the answer that the Bible speaks about, those promises? Where's his deliverance? Where's his power? Where's his provision? Where's his love? And your flesh is like a little baby crying out sometimes. Why don't you just give in and do make your own plan? Perseverance means my God is faithful. My God is faithful. I don't always have all the answers. I don't always know what to do. But this is what I know. God is faithful. And I'm going to keep on walking, keep on trusting, keep on praising, believing that my God will come through. God shows himself faithful to those who are faithful. The Bible says in in James 1 verses 2 to 4, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know, you know, and mature people know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work. Isn't that interesting? Perseverance works on us. As we persevere, perseverance works on us. Let it finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You're not maturing when I preach to you. You're not maturing when you read a Christian book. You're not maturing when you go to a Christian conference. You are maturing 
When your flesh is saying, no, no, make your own plan, do your own thing, solve your own problem, but your faith says, not a chance. I'm trusting in Jesus. His word is faithful. And as you keep pressing through, even when your, your flesh is saying, make it, that's when you're maturing. Revelation teaches us of the glory bestowed on those who persevere in the face of trials and suffering. Revelation 12, 11, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. What does it mean for us? We need to learn to not be afraid when suffering comes our way. We need to know that our strength is in God. We need to be convinced that pain is temporary, but rewards are eternal. Very quickly, I want to mention the last two pillars. Pillar number three is purity of the gospel. To Pergamum in Revelation 2 verse 14, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There's some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I'll come to you and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. To Thyatira in Revelations 2.20, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teachings, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Yikes. Jesus is passionate about his word. When Jesus was asked, how do we prepare for the end times? First thing he said in Matthew 24 verse 4, he answered, watch out that no one deceives you. It's the purity of the word. Nowadays, if you go to the bank and you you deposit money, they've got fancy machines that count all of that money. But in the older days, encounters at those, uh, the bank teller, I mean, they could count through stacks of, of notes so quickly and they wouldn't know exactly when they've hit a counterfeit. See, when you spend your time counting notes, your, your fingers become so sensitive to the feel of the genuine that suddenly, whoa, 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 one of those notes didn't feel right. There it is, the counterfeit. In the same way, as a people of the word, not just a people of experience. Yes, it's good to encounter God experience, but we're not primarily built on feelings and experience. We found it on his word and the purity of his word in our lives as we hold to the truth of the word. That's what gives us strength. Paul said to the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Purity of God's word. False teaching normally comes in three different ways. When you hear a teaching that somehow more glory seems to go to man or a man than Jesus, be on the lookout. When you hear a teaching where suddenly the focus seems to be more on money than on Jesus, be on the lookout. When suddenly you hear a teaching and suddenly it's okay to be sinful more than it's great to be holy, then be on the lookout. 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, 
As I urged you, Timothy, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrine any longer or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculation rather than advance God's work, which is by faith. Let me land with the last one. Number four, pillar number four, a church that's ready for Jesus' return, priority of the kingdom. Revelations 3 verse 15, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, in other words, this is your perspective. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, hectic. What does that mean for us? We need to make sure that our priorities... The way we see things and value things really do line up with the way Jesus sees them. It's easy to think a successful church, oh, we've got a nice building, we've got some aircon, we've got some lovely cushions. That, that's not a successful church. Successful church is a you and I standing by faith, persevering, trusting Jesus. That's successful church. What about a successful Christian? Successful Christian. Oh, we're blessed. We've got a beautiful home. We've got cars. We've got, no, that's not a successful Christian. Successful Christian is, are you doing what God has called you to do and finishing his work? That's a successful Christian. We've got to be so careful we don't allow our priorities to be shaped by the world and success in the world rather than what Jesus says. Matthew 6, verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus is ready. Church, are we ready? The pillars of a church ready for the return of Jesus is a church passionately in love with Jesus. A church who know how to persevere through tough times. A church who hold on to the purity of the word of God. Not just picking and choosing what they want from God's word. They hold to the whole counsel of God. And a church whose priority is the kingdom. So that's the church, but what about you? Why don't you stand with me, please? Because as you stand, I want to make it personal for a moment. If you don't mind closing your eyes, church, I want to ask you, your passion for Jesus. Do you truly love Jesus now more than ever before in your life? If not, I would encourage you right now to pray a prayer of repentance confession of sin. Lord, I've lost my first love. What about perseverance? Are you standing strong, drawing strength and courage to keep serving Jesus even when things are not turning out the way you wanted them to? What about purity of the gospel? Are you pursuing the whole word of God or only selecting the parts that you want? Is your heart still soft to be pierced by his word? And what about priority of the kingdom? Are you pursuing kingdom success or worldly success? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God or are you seeking first your own kingdom? Holy Spirit, would you come upon us right now? Holy Spirit, you just, we read, you the one who searches every heart and mind. We can't hide from you. We don't want to hide from you. Holy Spirit, we want to be a people ready for the end times. Whether you come in our lifetime or our future and our generations, Jesus, we want to live ready. Come, Holy Spirit.
I want to encourage you, church, do business with God right now. The Holy Spirit will be nudging you. The Holy Spirit will be putting his finger on different things. While you're doing that, I want to address some other folk. Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you were dragged along. Maybe you're visiting and maybe you know right now, yo, this is weird stuff to me. I've never even thought about it. I want to ask you, have you given your life to this Jesus that we're talking about? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus saves those that he's Lord of. Our step is to bow the knee and say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. As we begin to follow Jesus, he forgives us of our sin and leads us into all righteousness. So if you're here today and have never started the journey of following Jesus and you're ready to take that next step, maybe stepping into being a follower of Jesus, stepping into baptism to show the world I've got a new king, we would love to pray with you and we're going to do that right now. So Father, I want to thank you for this morning. Thank you for your work inside of our hearts. I pray for Outlook Church, Lord. I pray that we as a church would truly be ready for whatever comes in the future. Not just as a church, but individually, families, individual, moms, dads, husbands, wives, ready. Father, we give you all the glory and honor. We thank you that your gracious hand rests upon us in Jesus' name. And God's people say,